And I want to add my welcome as well. I'm Rob. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. Just come down front. The best place to find me or Lloyd when he's here teaching, just come down front after a service. And we'd love to say hello, put a name with a face. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. That's where we're going to pick up our text. Such an incredible passage this morning. You heard the first few verses of that read. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 1. So we'll go all the way down through 51. And I'm excited to teach this. I want to set it up this way. You know, we've been talking about this series. The, the title of it is Following Jesus. And it got me kind of thinking. It's like, all right, how did Jesus change the world? And what's interesting about Jesus is when, when he actually died, you know, it was like it, it appeared that everything was a failure. And then, of course, he was resurrected, but, but immediately the world didn't change. You know, you would have thought, oh, as soon as this guy rises from the dead, he's going to just go show himself before everybody. And everyone's it's undeniable proof that he is God and he's going to change the world overnight. That's not at all how it happened. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he, he's, you know, he goes back up to heaven and, and leaves the earth, at least in, in terms of his physical body no longer on the earth. Again, it didn't seem like his mission had necessarily been a success. All he has is this small little band of followers. How did Jesus change the world? Because no matter how you think about him or what you believe about him, it's hard to deny that he's the most influential human being who has ever lived on this planet. I don't think you could really argue with that. Jesus has changed the world. His impact, his influence, what he left behind, so to speak, has changed the world more than any other person who ever lived. How did he do it? He did not build a city. He did not build an empire. That's how some have gone about changing the world. He didn't conquer any real estate. In fact, Jesus didn't even really have a home during his ministry. Jesus didn't make a scientific discovery that's how some people have changed the world. He didn't do that. He didn't invent a new technology. It's another way he could have gone and done it. He didn't do that. How did he change the world? This morning, we're going to see that question begin to be answered. We're going to see Jesus beginning to change the world. And let's start with the verses that Lindsay has already read. We'll put them on the screen. I'm just going to take them a little bit at a time. Read them, explain, apply, move on. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Let's go. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Just pause right there. This is John the Baptist doing John the Baptist's job. And Eric, last week, Eric Hoffman did a great job of explaining John the Baptist, how his whole point was to witness. His whole, his whole point was to point, point to Jesus and say, that's the one you've been looking for, waiting for, not me, it's him. John the Baptist does his job and two of John's disciples, did you know John the Baptist had disciples? Two of John the Baptist's disciples become Jesus' disciples because John did his job. What's interesting about this to me, this is the only individuals that we have a direct record heard John point to Jesus or saw John point to Jesus and heard what John said about Jesus and started following Jesus. And if you think about John's whole purpose for life was to do that, was to point people to Jesus. We only know of two directly that started following Jesus from John's testimony. Of course, there probably were more, but we only know of these two. But here's what I want to say. If it had only been two, it would have been enough. Because these two tell others who tell others who tell others, 
and 2,000 years later, we're in this room. Do you see how this goes? So John's ministry was a success, if for no other reason than these two people. They leave his side, they start following Jesus, and notice what happens next. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following. So Jesus didn't call these guys. He just turns around and they're following, literally, literally following. They're behind him. And he turns, he sees them following. He, he turns and said to them, what are you seeking? And just stop right there with that. I just want to make note, and I'm going to mark it on the screen as well. And by the way, if you're marking up your text, which I encourage you to do, put a box around those words. They are the first words of Jesus in John's gospel. This is the first time we've seen red letter words, so to speak, you know, some copies of the Bible have the, the words of Jesus in red. And I've always kind of had mixed emotions about that. On the one hand, it's actually really helpful and handy. They just kind of pop off the page. I think that's great. On the other hand, don't think that the rest of the words are also not inspired by God. It's all God's word, but it is kind of cool to see the very words of Jesus. And here we get the very words of Jesus. He turns around and he says, what are you seeking? Notice the first words of Jesus in John are question. A uh, fun thing to do through John's gospel is to put a question mark in the margin every time you come to a question of Jesus. You'll find 36. That's a lot. 36 questions of Jesus. And some of them are intriguing. And all of them are intriguing. They come from Jesus. But, but just listen to this. Jesus' first words in John are a question. What we just saw. Jesus' first words after his resurrection are a question. They're asked to Mary Magdalene. He says, woman, why are you weeping? And Jesus' last words in the gospel of John are a question. He's talking to Peter and, you know, Peter's wanting to talk about John and, and, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm not talking about John, I'm talking about you. And Jesus asked Peter this question, what is it to you? What is it to you? So the first words of Jesus, the first words of Jesus after the resurrection and the last words of Jesus, according to the gospel of John, his record, all are questions, 36 in all. Pay attention to the questions of Jesus. Let's talk about this one in particular. What are you seeking? What an insightful question. What a great question of Jesus to ask someone. On the one hand, he might have been essentially saying, why are you following me? Saying, what are you, what are you hoping to get from this? But I think there's even something more deep going on. He's saying, what do you really want? What are you looking for that you think you might find in me? What's your deepest desire? Let's continue with the verse. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They didn't answer the question. It's like a politician, just answer a question with a question. Not, they, didn't, they didn't go there. Now, why didn't they answer the question? Maybe they didn't know what to say. Maybe it caught them off guard. Maybe they, they, they just weren't ready. Maybe they hadn't even thought about that question themselves, but they answer his question with a question. But before we move on to their question, I want us to think about what the answer was that they didn't say, because it is clear what they were looking for. We're gonna see it later in the text. You see, one of these guys is Andrew, Peter's brother. And we're about to see he's gonna to go to his brother Peter the next day, Simon Peter, and say, we found the Messiah. That's what they were seeking. 
So John the Baptist had said, look, I'm not the Messiah, but he is. And so then these two disciples of John, they start following Jesus to find out if he really is the Messiah. That's what they're looking for. Now, why didn't then they just say that? Who knows? Maybe they weren't ready to say that to Jesus yet, but that's what they were seeking. So they, 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 they don't answer the question. They, in fact, they answer it with a question, where are you staying? And then I love Jesus' response. Again, now the, the second words we have of Jesus, I want you to mark those as well. Just, we're not gonna do this through the whole gospel, but they're important in this context. Jesus says, come and you will see. It's interesting to connect those two phrases together. Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? What do you really want? What are you deeply desiring? And the next words are, come and you'll see. Come and you'll find what you're looking for. And indeed they do. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Uh, The 10th hour was 4 p.m. roughly on our time. And the significance of that is it's late afternoon. It's almost dinner time. What comes right after dinner time? Dark in this culture, you did not travel in the dark. You know, you couldn't hop in your automobile with headlights. It was dangerous to travel in the dark. So, so John is telling us they stayed with him that day. And the, the inference is they stayed with him the night as well. Jesus invited them into his home. Or we don't know where he was living at the time. He didn't have a permanent home of his own. So maybe he was staying with someone he knew and they were letting him have a room or a small house. Maybe he was, he was kind of camping out and he... But wherever Jesus was, he invited them into where he was living. What a gracious response. Come. See where I'm sleeping. See where where I'm living. See my, my, my dishes. Let me prepare some food for you. God in the flesh, inviting these men to come and see where he lives. Think about what's actually happening when you invite someone into your home. You're inviting them into relationship. You're saying, come, come. This is the most intimate part of me. I wanna be known by you and I wanna know you. Let's eat together. Let's spend this day together. God in the flesh, opening himself up to human beings. This is why Jesus came. Now, before we move on from this, I just want to say one more thing. It's clear that, that Andrew and, and the other unnamed uh, follower of John, it's clear that they were seeking Messiah and they found him. But there's a deeper thing they're seeking under Messiah, un- underneath Messiah. What, what do I mean by that? Well, why were the Jewish people looking for Messiah? Because their lives were a mess because the Romans were occupying their territory, because they were paying taxes like crazy, because they didn't have the freedoms that they wanted, on and on and on and on. They were looking for more than Messiah. I say it this way. They were looking for Messiah as a means to an end, the end being rescue, the end being deliverance. A word you could use to identify the deeper desire under their expectation of Messiah, the word you could use is hope. So what were these two disciples looking for from Jesus? Messiah, yes, underneath that, salvation, rescue, deliverance, hope. 
Connect the words of Jesus together. What are you seeking? If they had words to say, if they would have known their own hearts, they would have said salvation, rescue, hope. Jesus says, come and you'll see. You will find what you are looking for in me. Can you place yourself in the sandals of these two? Maybe you are drawn to Jesus for reasons you're not real sure of. You're here this morning. Maybe it was just the thing to do on a Sunday or, or, or maybe you're trying to get your life together and you just think maybe, maybe there's hope here. I don't know exactly where you are, but perhaps you're drawn to Jesus for reasons you're not exactly sure why. It's a good place to be. Jesus would say to you, what are you seeking? Come and you will see. Let's look at the next person who comes and sees Jesus. Verse 40 to 42, one of the two who had heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. We already established that, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we've found the Messiah, which means Christ. So you see what's happening here. Jesus says, come and see. He found what he was looking for, and now he's telling Peter, come and see. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. By the way, interesting that John's giving us a little translation as we go. The words of Jesus would have been likely in Aramaic. It was the, the common days that the Hebrew people spoke. They, they would have read the scripture in Hebrew. They would have uh, taught the scripture in Hebrew likely, but they would have talked to each other around the marketplace in Aramaic. And then now John, the apostle, is writing in Greek. Our New Testament is primarily in Greek. And so he's translating from the Aramaic, Jesus' words, to the Greek. And that's why we get these little parenthetical statements. So for example, kephas is an Aramaic word that means rock. Petra is a Greek word that means rock. So we get Peter from the Greek, Petra. So Andrew's experience with Jesus around the campfire, eating dinner together, spending the night, you know, can you imagine the conversations around dinner that, that they would have had with Jesus that evening? Andrew's experience with Jesus so convinced him that Jesus actually was what he was searching for, the Messiah, that he can't wait to talk to his brother. And notice the pattern that's being established from John the Baptist to Andrew, from Andrew to Peter. And I love the way Donald Barnhouse, famous preacher, said, even before the Lord Jesus told his disciples he'd make them fishers of men, Andrew witnessed to his brother and landed the big fisherman, Simon Peter. And we'll see how that storyline plays out as we go. We won't spend a lot of time this morning on Peter, but for sure he's gonna be a significant part of John's gospel and we'll talk a lot more about Peter. But I just wanna connect Peter back to the question on, on the previous screen, what are you seeking? Because that's a theme question for us through this whole text this morning. So Andrew was seeking Messiah, what is Peter seeking? Well, we don't know for sure, but I think we can infer some things by what Jesus gave him. What did Jesus give Simon in this text? Just say, it's a real question, actually. Yeah, a new name. A new name. Now, what can we infer that, that Peter was searching for, that Jesus 
saw what he needed and, and offered this new name. I, we, we can't go too far down that path, but what's the significance of a new name? It's a, a, a sense of calling, a sense of destiny, perhaps. It's, and Jesus is calling him up to something. He's saying, this is your future. Uh, maybe Peter just needed a fresh start. It's hard to know, but I want you to see a pattern that's being established deliberately by John as he's writing this gospel. People are looking for something. Jesus is showing them what they need. He's giving them what they need. He's providing their needs for them. Come and see. You're looking for Messiah? Come and see. You need a new start, a new name, fresh identity. You will be rock, Jesus says to Peter. Let's go on. We'll see some more people that Jesus encounters. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Let's pause there for just a minute. We'll finish the text in a moment. Anytime we have geographical references, I, I wanna help give you a visual of where we're talking about it. I think it helps the, this whole story come to life a little bit. So here is Israel at the time of Jesus. And, and let me kind of tell you where the story starts. It, it starts down here where John is baptizing. Now, we actually know where John is baptizing because in John chapter one, verse 28, it says he was baptizing near Bethany across the Jordan. There's two Bethanies. This is the one on the other side of the Jordan. So that would have been right around here. So Jesus would have been baptized probably right you know, in the Jordan River, close to Bethany right here. So John 1, 28 is taking place down here. Then it says, Jesus goes up to Galilee. Galilee is this area. You can see Bethsaida. Oops, I actually wrote over Bethsaida. It's right there. That's the city being referenced, the little town being referenced. So now up here we have John 1, 44. So we're tracking with Jesus. Before I move off this slide, here's what's gonna happen. Jesus is gonna spend two-thirds to three-fourths of his ministry in Northern Galilee. This is gonna be his home base, specifically in Capernaum which was the village where, where Peter and, and, uh, and John and all those folks were, were living. Now, they, they were, some of them were from Bethsaida, but they were living and fishing from Capernaum, which is right here. From this home base, Jesus is gonna launch. He'll go down to Jerusalem a number of times. He'll go up, uh, Caesarea Philippi, right, right over here. He's gonna kind of go all over the place. You'll find him in Samaria, which you weren't supposed to go, but Jesus likes to break in rules. You'll find him there in a few chapters. So this is the land of Jesus, and this is the home base of Jesus. And he helps to kind of have a little visual of what is, what is happening here. Let's get back to our text. Pick it up in verse 45. Philip, okay, Philip from Galilee, Philip found Nathanael must have been friends, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. You recognize that? I, I meant to do this on the first come and see and I forgot, but... You know, Mark, that's supposed to be glasses. Does that look anything like glasses? Okay, we're going to call that. Uh, yeah, it, it might help you to have little visuals of themes that build in this. So if you want to put in the margin, do it in the first come and see, which is earlier verse, and then do it again here in verse 46. So you see what's going on. Jesus says to Andrew, come and see. 
Andrew comes, he sees. He says to Peter, come and see. Peter comes, he sees, and he gets a new name. Now Jesus is calling someone else. He calls Philip. Philip sees, and then Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Now, I love uh, this little funny remark, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We don't know exactly why he said that. Some people speculate maybe Nazareth had a bad reputation. What we do know is Nazareth was a nothing town. You know, the, the, the town where Jesus was raised, where he grew up, was a nothing town at that time. It, there, was, there wasn't any famous things that happened there. There was no great prophet before Jesus who'd come from there. So Nathaniel who, by the way, is from Cana. Cana is a nearby town in Nazareth. Maybe they were high school rivals. He makes fun of Nazareth, you know? And that's all we know for sure is that Nathaniel makes fun of Nazareth. He says, can anything come out of Nazareth? Reminds me, um, one of our executive pastors, uh, Richard Scott, is from Dixon. Sometimes we like to make fun of Richard from Dixon. You know? <laughs> can anything good come out of Dixon? Some of you in the room are like, whoa, that's where I'm from. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. Richard Scott came from Dixon and Jesus came from Nazareth and you have come from Dixon perhaps. But, but that's the idea. <laughs> Can anything good come from there? No, well, Nathaniel doesn't see it, but Philip says, come and see. See for yourself. And that's the theme that's building through this text. So let's look at what happens next. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This little exchange has always fascinated me. I love how mysterious it is. From the outside, it, it just seems like, what's the big deal? Jesus says, I saw you in the fig tree. Maybe a lot of people saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Maybe that's where Nathaniel liked to hang out. Or, or maybe he was just there and Jesus walked by and saw him across the hill or whatever. But by Nathaniel's response, you know there's something unbelievable that has just transpired. There's something to Nathaniel about that fig tree. Some moment, some significance, something, because by Nathaniel's response, like Nathaniel had to be thinking, there's no way this man could have known that, could have seen me under a fig tree unless he was from God. And so he immediately believes, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. He goes straight to Messiah. You are the king of Israel. He, it doesn't take much to convince him because there's something here so significant. The narrator doesn't tell us what it is. He leaves it just between Nathaniel and Jesus. But I've always wondered. This is a great time for me to do a little commercial break. Okay. <laughs> I love this show. It, maybe it's not for everybody, but some, some of you have, have enjoyed this show. It's, they've finished season two. They're making season three. Uh, it's an te episodic television program that follows the life and ministry of Jesus. It's made by believers. Not all the cast members are believers, but a lot of them are, but it's, it's produced and made and written by believers. It's faithful to the biblical text 
but it also invites us to imagine some of the backstories that might've been going on in the lives of those who were chosen by Jesus to follow him. And there's one particular episode, I wish I had time to show it, but, but I can't, uh, where Jesus calls Nathaniel. And because of Nathaniel's backstory, which the writers just sort of, you know, they, they intuit some things, all of a sudden, this particular text comes to life. And if you haven't watched it, I want to encourage you to watch it. So you go, you download the app from the app store, and then you can watch it on the app. But I encourage you to, you can stream it to uh, your TV device if you have any of those magical boxes uh, hooked into your screen. It really is worth your time. I'll, I'll just say one last thing. As silly as it sounds, this show has helped me love Jesus even more. As someone who's read the Bible all my life, this show has helped me love Jesus even more. And if for no other reason, I would commend it to you for that reason. Now back to our text. We can only imagine what was going on in Nathaniel's heart, but we do know he recognizes Jesus. I, I want to call something out. Up to this point, Jesus has been the one saying, come and see, but look what he says now to Nathaniel. I saw you. The significance of that is this. Before Nathaniel knew to look for Jesus, Jesus was seeing him. Jesus knew him. Before any of us ever hear the invitation to come and see Jesus, Jesus knows us. It's the most amazing thing in your life when you come to get to know Jesus and you finally realize he, he is what I've been searching for. And then you learn that before I was searching for him, he was searching for me. And that's what you see going on in the life of Nathaniel. So if you track this theme, come and see, Throughout this passage, you see Jesus saying, come and see. Then you see Philip saying to Nathaniel, come and see. And then you see Jesus saying to Nathaniel, I saw you before you even knew about me. Now, it gets even more amazing in the next few verses. They're hard to understand, so we'll take a few minutes to explain them. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You know, Jesus is impressed with his faith. You will see greater things than these. By the way, there's our theme again. Now it's future tense. You will see greater things. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus talking about and why is this so amazing? There's only one other place in the Bible where someone sees angels ascending and descending. What's the reference? Someone shout it out. Jacob's Ladder. That's right, Jacob's Ladder. You might have heard of Jacob's Ladder. It comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 28. Jacob was one of the forefathers of the nation of Israel. Early in his life, he's gotten himself into some trouble. He's tricked his brother out of the birthright. He's on the run from the anger of his brother. And on his way out of town, 
he goes to a certain place and is tired and lays down, lays his head on a rock and he has this very vivid dream of a ladder. Or it might've been a stairwell. It's hard to translate that word. And the important thing though is he sees angels going up and angels going down and he hears God make some promises to him. Now, how does he interpret that, that dream? This is where it gets interesting. Look at, look at Genesis 28. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? It's kind of different than the way we use awesome. It's, it's a fear awesome. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Here's what's going on. Jacob assumed he had stumbled onto a portal. A, a, a little physical place that heaven and earth were connected. God's space and human space were connected. And, and he's essentially realizing, I didn't know that this was a special place. I just chose it because it looked comfortable. And I laid down and I saw, I got eyes to see what's really going on around me. This is the place where God lives. This is the gate. This is the entrance to the house of God. So he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And it becomes a very significant place throughout the Old Testament. Now, Go back to the words of Jesus. What does he say? You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder? No. On a stairway? No. On the Son of Man. Jesus is saying he is the ladder. He is the connectivity between earth and heaven, between human space and God's space between mankind and God himself. He's saying, I, I'm the stairway to heaven. It's me, it's my body. And you're going to see all of this come to pass, all of this fulfilled. He's saying, I am the true house of God. And this hyperlinks back to John earlier in John chapter one, the word became flesh. God took on a body. Jesus is telling these disciples, I'm even more than you know I am. Yes, I'm Messiah, but you didn't have the imagination to understand a Messiah who's fully God and fully man. He is expanding their brains. He's saying, you're going to see such greater things than this. You're going to actually come to find me as the God man, the connection, the ladder, the stairway. The only way to God is through me. He's saying all this with this reference back to Jacob's ladder. Now, I want to put the whole passage together. It starts with a penetrating question. I'm going to just rewrite it so we can have it fresh on our minds. Jesus asks, what are you seeking? It ends with Jesus saying, you're going to find so much more than you ever dreamed. And in the middle are these five men who encounter Jesus, each of whom begins to find what they're seeking. Each of them begins to find what they're looking for. 
The two disciples of John were searching for Messiah and they find him, which led them to hope. Peter, who knows what he was searching for, but Jesus gives him a new name. And what does Peter find? A fresh start, a vision for the future. Nathaniel, we don't know the significance of the fig tree, but you know what we do know? Nathaniel was so overwhelmed by being seen that he proclaimed that Jesus is the one. The disciples found hope. Peter found a fresh start. Nathaniel found someone who knew him and saw him. So how did Jesus change the world? Go back to the beginning of this message. How did Jesus change the world? He didn't write a book. He didn't build a city. He didn't conquer any land. He changed the world by offering the answer to what every human being is seeking. In other words, Jesus changed the world by being the answer to his own question. What are you seeking? As you read through John's gospel, you start seeing all of these followers of Jesus find in Jesus the thing they were looking for all along. I want to take you to the end of the gospel. Don't don't turn there. We won't put it on the screen. I just want to tell you what happens with Mary Magdalene. Mary, a follower of Jesus, someone who'd been rescued by Jesus. He'd cast demons out of her. She was a transformed person. She finally understands by the end of the story is Jesus she's been seeking all of her life. But guess what? Jesus dies. He's in the tomb. She goes to the tomb. His body's not even there. She starts weeping at the tomb. Jesus appears to her, and that's when he says, woman, why are you weeping? And before she even answers, he asks her a second question. Whom are you seeking? It's the same question he asked these guys, but instead of what are you seeking? It's now whom are you seeking? Because it's become clear that what you're seeking is a person. And it's the person. And it's this person. And so Jesus is still changing the world today. And he's doing it the same way he always has, by going straight to the desires and longings of every heart, by asking this question, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And then saying, come and see. What are you seeking? Come and see. I want to give us a minute to reflect on this question because this is one of those change your life kinds of questions if you really are willing to to dig into what's going on inside of you. I've I've put two questions on the screen and, and we'll give you a minute or two as the band comes out to contemplate and consider this first question, what are you seeking? You know, every week when we read the Bible, we read the scripture passage, we say, this is the living word of God for us today. And and I, I would invite you to hear that question as from Jesus to you through the scripture this morning. This is Jesus' question of you. What, are you. what are you really looking for? What do you really want? What are you trying to find in life? 
What have you been wrestling with and searching for and, and trying to, to come to terms with your entire life? What are you seeking from Jesus? Why are you following me? Jesus would say, what do you want? What are you seeking? Spend some time wrestling through that question. And then the second question, how will you respond to Jesus' invitation to come and see? Because that's what he'll do right after he asks you that question. His next words are gonna be, come, come to me and you'll find it. What are you seeking? Come, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. How will you respond to his invitation to come and see? So let's just take a moment or two right now and consider these questions. A wonderful response to Jesus' question is what you picked up on your way in. I wanna invite you to pull out the communion elements. And if you missed them when you came in, I, I wanna encourage you right now, just take a moment to go get them. This table is open to all who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. At any point in your life, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a part of this church, you don't have to be a part of our congregation, but this is something we do every week to remind us who Jesus is and what it means to us. So I wanna encourage you, you can go ahead and just peel back this first layer, take out the bread, don't eat it yet, but just take out the, the little piece of bread. One of the things I love about communion is it, it's, it's something we can see. You see, the disciples got to see Jesus with their own eyes and they got to touch him and they got to hug him and embrace him and they heard the sound of his voice and then he went away. You know, he was buried, he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven not that long after that. And where is he today? He's not, he's not here on earth, not his physical body. His physical body, the scripture says, is at the right hand of the Father. We can't see him right now, not yet, but guess what we can see? This symbol, this representation. And I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he gave this gift to the church. And he gave it first to the disciples and he told them, to pass it on to others. I think he knew there would be millions of us Christians who wouldn't have the, the joy of seeing him yet with our own eyes, but we need something to see, something to hold. And this is ours this morning. This is for you. If you know I'm seeking something and if you're willing to dare to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of what you're seeking, and this is his body broken for you. Take and eat. Take the cup, peel back the foil from the cup. And Jesus was in that last supper with his disciples. After he broke the bread, he, he, he lifted up a cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant that is in my blood. That means relationship. Covenant means a way things are arranged. An opportunity to know God is now put before us through the blood of Jesus. Whatever your deepest longings are, whatever it is you're seeking, you are separated from the life source himself until you come to see that Jesus died for you. And until you can believe, until you have eyes to believe that the blood of Jesus cleansed all the barriers away between me and God, cleansed my sin. And now you can look and you can see this juice and it reminds you of the blood of Jesus, your salvation, your rescue. Let us drink the cup.
Paul said, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're, we're proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that Jesus gave himself so that we could get what we most needed. We're gonna sing a song in just a minute that reminds us who's at the center of all this and calls our hearts affections, as Carl was saying earlier. God's word has reminded us what's true. Now our hearts are able to respond to that truth in song. Let's stand up and we'll sing together.